I may need a microphone. I may have a microphone. So much. Appreciate that. Good morning. Great to be in the house with you. Before we dive into the message this morning, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I, uh, I just need you to know how grateful Julie and I are for you, how grateful we are to you. So many of you reached out to our family. I know you've been praying for us. We have sensed the prayers. Um, we lost a very close family member a couple of weeks ago, Lee Beth Young, the daughter, eldest daughter of Ed and Lisa Young. Ed is Julie's cousin. I've known him since I was in the fifth grade. We're close. And uh, it, was, it was a tough, tough couple of weeks. But I have to let you know this. This is not the sermon today, but I have to let you know this. Over the last two weeks, we have seen God's goodness, his grace, and his truth over and over and over again show up in such powerful and palpable ways that were just overwhelming, and we were reminded anew just how important family really is and how crucial the family of faith is, how crucial the church is. And so we're so grateful to you and grateful for you. Uh, we appreciate your prayers more than I can tell you. I also need to say a monster, monster thank you to our very own Bill Jones, who preached into our church family last weekend so powerfully. Now, he had, I mean, he did have a whole 48 hours to prepare, but at the same time, uh, if you missed last week's sermon, you need to go back and pick it up. It's phenomenal. We're a better church for it, so Bill, thank you so, so much. Um, but suffice it to say, we're glad to be home, and it's good to be back. It's good to see a lot of people in the room. That's exciting. <clears throat> Hey, and by the way, we're excited about the people who are in the room via video, the internet and connecting that way. That's awesome, too. So we're, we're excited and, and grateful to be with you this morning. Today, we are picking back up this teaching series that we've been in for the last few weeks in the beginning. Now, if you haven't been here, what we're doing is taking a very methodical look at the origins of everything, going back to Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two and three, and, and looking at the fact and the significance of the fact that God is the prime mover in everything. He is the instigator of everything that we know. We, we spent time in, in week one just going over the fact that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the significance of that. We looked at the following week, how God imposed structure and order over that which had been formless and chaotic and how he created with intentionality and he, he created and then he populated what he had created and all of that culminated in you and me, in humanity, the fact that unlike any other part of creation, people are created in the image of God and just what that means and the significance of it. But today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that reality because the fact is that there's more to the story than just the fact that we're created in the image of God. As powerful as that truth is, that there's more going on in how God chose to create people in his image. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in Genesis chapter number one. I'm going to do this little motor skills test here with the microphone in hand. 
This is why I usually use a headset. It's because I don't have that kind of motor skills. I thought that was funny, but apparently you believe it and feel sorry for me. That's cool. That's, that's really cool. But in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says this. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this reality goes so much deeper than just a quick cursory glance would, would cause us to think. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself referenced this in Matthew chapter 19. Now, I'm going to get to that in just a second, but let me remind you kind of how the creation account and narrative goes in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it kind of says what God did, but in Genesis chapter 2, it goes back over the same material and kind of explains in more detail why God did what he did. And when it comes to creating human beings in the image of God, this happens yet again. And Jesus, Jesus fused the what of Genesis 1 and the why of Genesis chapter 2. Now, before we get into that, I want to make sure that you understand something. Part of why we're doing this series the way that we're doing it is that I want us as a church family to develop the muscle memory of knowing how to read the Bible for all it's worth. How do we look at Scripture? How do we read it personally and for our own spiritual development and growth? Because I'm going to tell you something. Some of us, just the fact that you walked in the door on a Sunday morning or you're watching online somewhere, that is a monster spiritual step in your journey. And we honor that and celebrate it. But let me just tell you this, if that's as far as it ever goes, if you only do what happens in here on Sunday mornings, you are missing so much more of what God has for you. And what we want to do is, is read the Bible for all it's worth. And so to keep that in mind, there are four things I want to just mention to you. This is free of charge and has nothing to do with this particular sermon, but it's critical when you read the Bible to remember these four things. And as you read the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of these things and to help you filter what you're reading through these four things. Number one, as you read the Bible, remember, God is God, we are not. God is God, we are not. That's why I love that hymn, How Great Thou Art. Man, there's nothing like, I think that's one of the greatest theological statements in the history of the world. It's not in the Bible, but it's rooted in Scripture that God is God. God. He, he is, he's God and I'm not. Second thing that we need to remember, God is good. As you read the Bible, you just remember the fact that God is good. Number three, remember that God is just. God is always absolutely and completely just and fair. If he makes a judgment, it's the right call. You and I make judgment calls all the time. We're like, I don't know if that's the right thing. God has never wondered, I don't know what I should do. He always knows the right thing to do. And then number four, God is transcendent. God is transcendent. What that means is because he is infinite and we are finite, we can't grasp everything about God. You will never be able to put God in a box. But everything that we need to know is given to us in Scripture. So as you read the Bible, as you study the Bible, keep those four things in mind. God is God. We're not. God is good. 
God is just and God is transcendent. And all four of these things are on bright HD display in Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The Pharisees, if you don't know, the Pharisees were a very legalistic, hyper-religious sect of Jews during Jesus' time. And they were all the time trying to trap Jesus. They were trying to, trying to trick him, like they were going to outwit the Son of God. But they were always trying to trap him. And in this particular instance, in Matthew chapter 19, they come to Jesus and they're trying to trick him about marriage and divorce. And they're like, okay, Jesus, Moses said we could get a divorce, da-da-da-da-da. What do you say? And, and Jesus, as he did over and over again, he, he, he took it to the H&L. He took it to a whole nother level. And he said, you're, you're missing the point. This isn't a point about the law. This is a point about your heart. And he went all the way back to the very beginning. He said, it's, it's not about when do you get to get divorced. It's about why you get to stay married. And he went back to the very beginning. And he combines Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. He said, God created them, male and female. Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Now, I want everybody to turn to your neighbor and tell your neighbor, this is going to be good. Because some of you right now are already kind of like backing up like, oh, here's that helper suitable woman submit thing. I don't want to be here. <laughs> and if that's what you think, I understand. But if that's what you think, you don't understand scripture. When the Bible says, I will make a helper suitable, I will make a helper for him, you have to understand the context of the original language. And let me just say this. A lot of men for a lot of years have so grossly misrepresented God's intent here. I'm going to try to do it justice, but remember, God is good and God is God as we, as we go through this. The term helper suitable is the one that gets used a lot. is actually from the Hebrew term ezer konegdo. Everybody say ezer. ezer. Okay, well you gotta, if, when you learn what this means, you're going to say it with more power. You've got to say ezer. ezer. Now say konegdo. Okay, now you can dazzle all your friends with your Hebrew for the rest of the week. But this term helper suitable, it really means, when it says a helper, the only other time that the word ezer is used, it's referring to God. How do you like that, ladies? Now it's kind of like, well, okay, maybe I'll accept it now. And not only does it refer to God as our helper, it is God whom we call on for defense. We need God's help and strength in our lives. It's actually a military term. So it's actually God who is a warrior when it's used of God. So women, get your sword sharp. Women, you are a warrior created suitably for a man who God looked at and goes, this ain't good. <laughs> at every step of creation, God saw what he had made and he said, it is good, 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 it is good. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, 
why would God say it's not good for man to be alone? Let me just tell you, it's not because the garden would have been really messy, although that's true. It, It goes back to his heart when he created humanity to bear the image of God. And here's here's the whole sermon, if you want it in just one sentence. Everything that God intended when he created humanity in his image, everything that humanity carries and conveys and communicates about the character of God is caught up in this reality of male and female. You see, there are parts of God's character that, that men primarily carry more than women, but can I just get a witness that there are parts of God's character that women primarily carry more than men? Somebody help me preach. So I'm just saying, it's both male and female. And the more you read this, the more you pray over this, the more you live this out, the more the creative genius of God just watch, you just, I mean, as I've been studying and preparing for this message, I have been overwhelmed anew at how great God art. I mean, just the creative genius of God to see what he did in creates all the way back at the very beginning, at the very beginning. And this is what Jesus references to the Pharisees. He goes, it's not about when you can get divorced. It's about why you stay married. He said, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two become one flesh. But look at what happens. God, first of all, decides it's not good for man to be alone. I will make this warrior suitable, this warrior who compliments him. And it's compliment with an E, not compliment with an I. You know what I'm saying? It's not like, honey, you're doing a great job. It's I will compliment you. I will complete you to bear the image of God that he's created human beings to bear. So man by himself could not accurately, completely represent the image of God that he was created to bear. So that's why God said, I got to make a woman. I got to make a woman. And the Bible says that God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. Anesthesios. I'm just kidding. I just made that word up. But he gave him a deep sleep and performed surgery and took a rib from Adam's side. And out of that rib, he fashioned a woman. Now, the Bible says that God created man from the dust of the earth and breathed life into his nostrils. But woman, woman he took from the rib of man. He took this woman from the rib. So man was was refined dust. Woman was double refined. Woman came from the rib of man from his side. The, the, the rib cage that protects, that gives you structure, that's where woman came from. And the Bible says that then God presented the woman to the man. Think about that for a second. God presented the woman to the man. I remember the morning that I proposed to Julie. When I proposed to Julie, I I had a a wedding ring. I had it in my pocket. And I had had arranged this with her parents. It was Christmas morning. I drove from Houston to Laurel, Mississippi, where Julie lived. And 
snuck into the room where she was still sleeping on Christmas morning. I said, Julie, Julie. She rolled over and she goes, does my dad know you're in here? I said, he does. He does. And I remember giving her this ring. She hadn't seen the ring. I, I picked it out. I, you know, I, I did the whole thing, scared to death. But what that ring represented, I, I wanted her in that moment to capture what I was trying to convey. And I'll never forget, she put that ring on her finger and she just went. And, and there was this look on her face that was, I, I was so relieved. Men, if you know what I'm talking about. When you, when you make that proposal, you don't want her to go, thanks. I mean, you, that's like if you go to kiss somebody goodnight and they give you the cheek, it's bad. But when God presented the woman to Adam, keeping in mind that he is God and he is good, I just got to believe that God wanted Adam to understand the gift that God was giving him in that moment. And, and, he, and the, the, the Bible actually conveys that Adam got it. Here, here's what happened in Genesis chapter 2, the, verse 22 and following. It says, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. Watch this. At last, the man exclaimed. <laughs> that, um, that, that's greatness. At last, this one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. When the Bible says, at last, that, that's, a, that's a Hebrew term that is, is loosely translated hot ziggity. Like, Oh my gosh. That there because see, prior to this, Adam had been naming all of the animals. And he had seen them with their own corresponding mate, but a suitable mate was not found for the man. And when God presented the woman to the man, he said, At last. And he saw in Eve something of himself, but different. He saw in Eve something that he recognized, but he knew he needed. And there was this, this sense of euphoria, that term at last in the original Hebrew, it's actually a term of celebration. It's like, whoo, wow. You know, it, it, would be, it would be the correspondence to, oh yeah. That's what Adam said and was thinking when he saw Eve for the first time. I've been to seminary. I know these things. So there's this incredible euphoria when God presents the woman. Whew. And Adam's like, all right, now we can start living. And so you start to understand in Genesis, in Genesis, that male and female really matters. There is nothing that God does arbitrarily. There's not a single part of creation that God did just on a whim. Let's just see what happens. God does not throw spaghetti 
on the wall and see what sticks. Everything he does is intentional. It's deliberate. It's purposeful. And so when you understand this reality, then you kind of start to understand the gospel. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 2, God is already preparing for the solution to Genesis chapter 3. Now, Genesis chapter 3, of course, is the, the fall of man. It's the original sin. But God is already setting up the resolution for the conflict of sin in Genesis chapter 2. He's already showing how he's going to do this in this incredible living metaphor called marriage. It's an amazing, um, again, the creative genius of God. He's, he's always about a squillion steps ahead of us. And most of us are playing catch up. Most of us, and by most of us, I mean every single one of us. We're, we're getting there. We're, we're getting more understanding. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, is built on the reality of Genesis 1 and 2. It says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So, so here's, the, here's the take home. Just very simply, honor the sanctity of human sexuality. Honor the sanctity, the the divine origins, the holiness and set-apartness of our sexuality. There is no other creature in creation who carries a sexuality like humanity. We're the only ones who have so much packed into the reality of male and female. This, this thing really matters. Now, it's, I think it's easy to say honor the sanctity of human sexuality. But how do you do that? How do you, how do you really and truly play that out? And before we get there, I think it's really important for us to just remember something that we, we talked about last fall. If, if you were a part of our church family and you were, you were here last fall, you know that we went through this whole thing called clarity in the chaos. And, and we talked about the fact that as followers of Christ... God calls us to bring every thought captive to Christ. Every thought. Because every, we, we can have thoughts, feelings, and ideas that come from anywhere. Some of them are solid. Some of them are wackadoodle-doo. But we've got these thoughts, feelings, and ideas that we have to filter through the saying of truth, through Scripture and God's Word, and not just how we feel about it. Nowhere is this more important than in the area of our sexuality. This is one of those things that as parents, it's incumbent upon us to, to teach our children not just what to think, but how to think about these things. How do we, how do we help them? How do we guide them? And so we, we bring everything through the filter of Scripture, through the filter of God's Word. Now, I, listen, some of you right now are so nervous. You're like, I just wish you wouldn't do this. You know what, you, it's like this. When I was a kid, 
A friend of mine, when I was probably seven years old, a friend of mine invited me to the Destruction Derby in the Houston Astrodome where I grew up. Now, Destruction Derby is a fun, it's a testosterone fest, man. It's just like cars banging into each other, motorcycles, trucks, blah, 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 blah. It's just so loud. It's awesome. At one point in this night, there was a motorcycle stunt jumper, a guy by the name of Gary Wells. If you've never heard of Gary Wells, you should Google him, YouTube him. He's fascinating. He's kind of a, a blue-collar evil Knievel. And Gary Wells was going to jump like 18 cars this night in the Astrodome. And we were so excited. But what happened was this. As they brought out more cars and they started lining them up ramp to ramp, as a little kid, I started kind of going, that's a long way. And they kept bringing out more cars and more cars. I was going, that's a longer way. That's a, and as a, as a kid, I got so anxious. I don't mean nervous like excited. I mean anxious. I started thinking, I'm going to watch a man die tonight. Some of you are feeling the same way about this sermon. <laughs> let, let me just tell you, Gary Wells made the jump, okay? By the grace of God and resting on his scripture, we will make this sermon. But we got to go here. We, we have to deal with this fact. To honor our human sexuality and the sanctity of human sexuality Number one, value the divine purpose of male and female. Value the divine purpose of male and female. When you value the divine purpose of male and female, no one, no one is discounted. No one is diminished. You see, God elevates humanity as he illustrates his purpose. God elevates humanity as he illustrates his purpose. Women are elevated. The New Testament says that in Christ Jesus, there is now neither male nor female. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It means that they are equal, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so men and women are elevated. We're not striving to better one another. We complement one another. We value the divine purpose of male and female. This is not where our world is living right now. Our world will tell us and tells us over and over again that male and female are social constructs, that, that male and female are arbitrary. This is not true. This is not real. Male and female matters. I, I may not know you and your whole story and your whole life, but I bet I could guess with about 98.7% accuracy the first thing that was ever known about you. Before anybody asked your name, before anybody asked the color of your hair, when somebody found that your mom was delivering a new child into the world, they said, what is it? What is it? The question being is, is it a boy or is it a girl? And we live in a world that is trying to destroy the creative genius of God. And, and I think it's important for us to understand that the church must answer this with truth and grace. 
We must be compassionate. Because the fact is, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of chaos about this in our world. So we need to address this with compassion, with kindness. But part of being kind is telling people the truth. Now, I'm going to read something to you that's from the state of California. Probably 70% of you are from the state of California. But, and we just like to say welcome. But, this is on its way to Texas. This was attempted here in Austin this year. This is from the California Health Education Curriculum Framework for California Public Schools, kindergarten through grade 12. Specifically, kindergarten through third grade, guidelines for teachers on gender identity. This is a direct quote. I'm not making this up. I'm not embellishing. While students may not fully understand the concepts of gender expression and identity, some children in kindergarten and even younger have identified as transgender or understand that they have a gender identity that is different from their sex assigned at birth. Five-year-olds, may I suggest to you, are not ready to determine their gender identity. Five-year-olds. I just know where I was when I was five. I didn't know which crayon I wanted to eat. <laughs> but as parents, this is reality. This is where as followers of Christ, we, we cling to the truth and we communicate it in grace. And so we, we have to be willing to say no because dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot for this conversation begins in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, he created them in his image, male and female. He created them. So I would just encourage you to be kind, but do not sacrifice the truth and the reality of male and female. Male and female matters. Male and female is God's design. And, and we help by communicating truth and clarity with grace and compassion. So value the divine purpose of male and female. Number two. Protect the divine gift of sex. Protect the divine gift of sex. When we say protect it, we protect sex in the context of covenant marriage. One man, one woman, one life. Now, you and I both know, nobody gets that perfect. Nobody gets that perfect. Jesus made a really inconvenient statement. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. Rut row. 
I would suggest to you that the principle translates to women. If you look at a man with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's a heart issue. But within the context of covenant marriage, there is this, this protective cocoon where God not just protects, but he flourishes the gift of sex between a husband and a wife. For husband and wife to celebrate one another. It's not like this notion that God somehow created sex only for procreation, only for biology. That ain't biblical. Song of Solomon is rated R, headed for NC-17. It is a celebration of the gift of sex between husband and wife. Throughout the Bible, there is this celebration. God affirms one man, one woman, one life, enjoying one another. 1 Corinthians even goes so far as to say that a man and a wife should not deprive each other sexually except for a season agreed upon together for prayer. But then you should come back together quickly so that you do not burn with lust. <laughs> I was preaching that sermon one time when we were still in the high school, and one of the sheriffs who, who was providing security for us at the time, everybody had kind of cleared out, and I was getting ready to leave. He said, Pastor, can I ask you a question? It always makes me nervous if somebody in a badge wants to talk. I said, yeah. He goes, um, that, that verse that you mentioned in Corinthians, could you tell me that again? Because my wife's not going to believe that's in the Bible. <laughs> but we guard this gift. And we guard this gift whether we're married or not. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. If you're single, if you're not married, protect the gift. God has given you a gift that he wants you to give your spouse at some point if he leads you to be married, but regardless, guard the gift. And if you're a single parent, whoa, you've got a double responsibility to convey to your kids the value that God places on sex. To say, you know what, we, we will guard this gift and we will, we will honor what God says because we trust him more than we trust ourselves. Protect the gift, guard the gift. And then number three, value. Value the divine purpose of marriage. I said a minute ago that God started to illustrate his purposes in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you'll remember, we've always said that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Old Testament to Jesus. Jesus to everything in the New Testament. Nowhere is that more true than marriage. You see, God's view of marriage comes into its fullest, clearest focus in the cross. In the cross. Ephesians chapter 5. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. That's referencing Genesis. Then I love this in verse 32. This is a great mystery. Isn't that how many of us are how many of you are married? Let me just see a show of hands if you're married. Isn't that the truth? This is a mystery that this works for five minutes. A man and a woman, different families of origin, different values, different priorities. Go be one. <laughs> this is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. 
So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Each man must love his wife. I believe with everything I have that that verse means in the shadow of the cross, post-resurrection, every man sees his wife the way Adam saw Eve. That you wake up and you're like, whoa, at last. Oh, yeah. And that the wife sees a man who treasures her, who sees her as the gift that God has presented to her, to him. And because she sees herself in his eyes that way, she looks at him differently. And that all of this works together because God elevates as he illustrates. You see, marriage, man and woman becoming one, united into one, that's fine as far as it goes. It's great when it works. Awesome, well done. But it's ultimately about God. It's ultimately about what he has done for each one of us through Christ. Paul says earlier in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. He chose to go to the cross. He chose to sacrifice, to serve as he leads us in relationship with God the Father. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. I don't know where you are in this moment. But I know that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you. I know that he willingly paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. And he died. And he rose from the dead on the third day with the offer of new life for anyone who would follow him. If you're here today, if you're in person or you're online and you have never stepped into that relationship with Christ, we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Using a conversation about marriage and male and female and everything else as a springboard into the reality of a relationship with God. If that's you, then we invite you to pray. Just right where you are. Talk to God from your heart to his. Just say something like this silently. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you and I confess my sin to you. All of it, holding nothing back. And I ask that you would give me the strength, the courage to repent, to turn away from that sin and to follow you. I commit my life to you. I will follow you from this moment forward. As my savior, 
and as the Lord of all of my life. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. For just a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. And we do that because this is sacred ground. When God moves, when God is present, that's sacred ground. If that was your prayer, then as a church, we want to help with what's next. We want to come alongside and help you to take that next step in this new relationship with him. In just a moment, we'll give you some help as to how to make that happen. But if you just prayed that prayer of commitment, I want to ask you just to raise your hand, just quietly, but definitely raise your hand and hold it up in the air for just a moment as a statement of your faith, a declaration that I'm in. And know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. We honor that. And as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.